Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Hashtag Call the Scene podcast. I have been trying to get this one guest on the show since his book launched last year, early last year, 2019. So that tells you how freaking persistent I am <laughs> and also how things come around. If, you, if th- these topics are so important that it's just a matter of time. I don't want to distress. The time will come and it is the perfect time to have this show before we all get together. 1,000 of you get together with me on Saturday for the intro to how to be an anti-racist um, event. So I would like to introduce Jonathan Metzel, pronouns he, him. Jonathan, would you please introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Well, first, let me say how glad I am to be here. And I'm glad we I'm glad we made this work, um, but I'm the uh, director of the Department for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt, and I'm a professor, as you said. I'm a, I'm a sociologist and psychiatrist. And um, tell them the name of this book. <laughs> so I wrote a book called Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. Okay, so we're going to jump right into this because we have, so I really want um, Jonathan to break some stuff down for you white folks. Um, and that's why I've been wanting him to get on here so badly because, you know, I really don't give a shit about your opinions unless you come from a, um, a place of scholarship and know what you're talking about because we have all been designed and, 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 and um, indoctrinated into this system that says that only white men have value and everybody else doesn't. And what Jonathan, I hope, will get you to understand that the system of white supremacy is fundamentally impacting white people as well. It's not just a brown and black issue. Um, and so I start this show every time with two questions. How are you causing a scene? No, why is it important? To, you can see I'm excited about this. Well, I'm, really <laughs> I'm just like, oh my God, let's get into this. So let's jump in. Why is it important to cause a scene, Jonathan? And how are you specifically causing a scene? Well, I think you summarized my argument pretty well there in that I think it's it's so important for white people to speak out um, against, uh, against structural racism, against the system that they created and are a part of. Um, and so part of what I've done in all my research is, is to say basically that racism shouldn't just be a conversation among any one community. Racism is a relational concept um, that was really uh, created in relation to whiteness, right? It's, racism tells you about white anxiety. Um, what you see in society is you see the effects of racism, um, but racism itself really is a reflection of the anxieties and values of whiteness. And so I, I say that, um, you know, that's been all of my work. And, and certainly that was the work that came out in, in the book, Dying of Whiteness, is to say, um, hey, look, um, this system isn't working for anyone, including the people who, who it's supposed to benefit. And so I personally feel like I caused, you know, a beginning of a scene um, w- with this book because the book came out. And I, I basically the argument of the book was just to show people in red states how much 
um, on one hand, they were oppressing other people with their with the system, but also they were trading off months and years of their life and quality of life and all these factors to create this oppressive system. And so, um, you know, since you and I we hung out right at the at the book launch, right, <laughs> a long time ago, um, and since then, you know, I've been engaged with neo-nazis and with the right wingers and stuff like that and honestly i don't mind having those conversations but i i basically say like is this is this idiotic system um worth trading years of your life for and then also if you look at other systems that are not so um hierarchical they're more horizontal people do better everyone does better and so part of this is i i just really feel like i i understand right now why and it's so important the conversation we're having but if this is just a conversation about uh, you know being driven by um, minoritized people and not also by white people admitting their role in this that i think the conversation is 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 um is not as powerful right and so um part of the issue is trying to get more more white people to talk out about this system and and its pathology Ooh, okay, so I love how, thank you, thank you, thank you for continuing to call it a system, a system of whiteness. It's a system, people, it's a system. Um, and this is why it's so funny how um, um, I use blackness as the only parallel that I have to whiteness. Um, even though blackness is considered groups, white folks have a problem with whiteness because they're used to being individuals. So they don't like to be in that group. Um, of, uh, but that's the only way I can see finding some balance in this, even though we're not talking about balance related to power and privilege, but just in having an, a, ba- a more balanced, when, and, and I need to be careful about this when I say this, because when I say balance, I still mean prioritizing the most vulnerable, um, but the, a balanced conversation. And how, did, so yes, you, I remember you, I was watching AM Joy and you um, were on the show and you mentioned your book and I immediately put it on the, uh, my wish list and you bought the book for me. I remember that. You purchased it for it. Yeah. You purchased it for it. Cause I was like, who's buying this book? I'm watching this show. Who's buying this book? And you're like, I will. And when was that? That was a Last, year ago. Yeah. The, about a year ago. Yeah. I, yeah. I forgot about that. That's awesome. Yeah. And so I figured you know, and I've asked several times, and I understand, particularly when people have books coming out, um, that they're on the go. And so I was just like, okay, I'll send a message every two or three months and see, hey, is this, a, <laughs> <laughs> is this a good time to talk? And what prompted this one was um, you, the, the video that I wrote, I mean, did, video I wrote, um, saying we should stop recommending white fragility at this time. White Fragility is, is, is strictly a book about um, white, that belongs deeply in white studies. I do not want to be, I do not think it's advantageous. And I actually believe it's harmful because I've seen how, just in our community, how the language of an academic term is, um, this is the difference between when something's theory and something is practice and how does it look differently in the world. I've seen the harm that people um, um, can cause when everything is white fragility. I've seen it. It discounts any experiences that any marginalized person has because now it feeds into the narrative of whiteness can only be hero or victim and never a villain. Um, and 
I appreciate your scholarship because it's rooted in history. And this is what the, this is the big problem that I'm seeing. And this is why I'm sending everybody to, instead of reading white fragility to listen to seeing, um, seeing white on um, podcasts, because it's such a great um, historical perspective because we are so ignorant as we, we were saying at the beginning, this is by design. These systems, this this lack of education was a design. It was designed so that we could, so that whiteness as a system wouldn't be questioned. So not only whiteness as a system wouldn't be questioned, it would be defended. <laughs> it would be actively defended as the righteous, as the righteous path, as the righteous thing. And so I really want you to, I'm going to be quiet because I really want you to break this down because my audience are, is white people. That is who I talk to. And having a scholar on who studied this, I want you to tell me some his. How did you get to this place? <laughs> some and and give me some real stories. I need some kind. People need to see here concrete examples of how whiteness is 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 harming white people. So if you can, I'm going to mute myself and I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Don't be yourself. Let's have a conversation. You know, I I think that on one hand, you know, it's great that all this anti-racist work is happening now. So Robin's book and and, uh, and Ibram's amazing work, and so the fact that we're having a conversation, and and I think what's important about that, um, before I tell you how I differ, um, is just that a lot of people haven't really believe it or not, thought about this stuff before. And so I think that it's useful to give people a language and the, and the language about anti-racism is how am I complicit? In other words, how was I living in, a, in, a, uh, in an apartheid system and, and, and what, was, what was wrong with me that I didn't see that, right? And so, um, and so partially, I think that that, that that literature is important, but I'm, I'm a structuralist, right? In other words, I'm saying that whiteness is not just about what's happening in white people's minds, right? That's important, and it's important to recognize, but it's also reinforced by laws, by zoning, by school boards, by redlining, by, you know, where you put a grocery store and where you put a bodega, all these kind of things. And so in a way, for me, it's kind of like you could have the most woke white people in the world, and if there still are these structural issues that are at play, and those structural issues impact language, they impact understanding, they surround us in ways that we just don't see. And it's not just about attitudes. And I'll give you one example that's kind of counterintuitive from a paper I'm working on right now, which is I'm doing a paper on mass shootings, right? Horrible tragedies in our country. And what I'm finding is that when the mass shooter is white, you know, it's it's a moment of trauma, it's horrible, it's it's murder. But society always says this this is the it's mental illness in the in the white mass shooter. This person has some mental illness. They we need to get them to a psychiatrist. Um, and 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 the, the notion is basically, as you were saying, that it's all about the individual mind, right? Um, but when uh, when it's you know a quote unquote gang shooting or something, all this term we use for you know black victim mass shootings, all of a sudden the problem is it's culture, it's it's um, society and things like that. And, I didn't even realize that until I started going through like three years of media reports about mass shootings. And I realized like, wait a minute, one of these is, is being coded as an individual act. And it, you know, they all suck, right? People die in all mass shootings, but one is basically saying, here's a disorder, here's an act created by a criminal individual because of their disordered mind. And the other rhetoric is saying, basically, there's something wrong with culture, or if you live in an urban area, that's what you deserve, or all these kind of things. It's, it's a societal problem. So even the language you use about these bigger issues reinforces this idea of kind of white individualism versus black 
culture or something. And also, I would like to add on to that. It's the infant. Um, I can never say this name when I need to. Um, the infant. Uh, come on, people. Um, when we 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 infantize whiteness, white men can be called boys and like until they're damn near dead. Um, we, we have one as president. Well, no, see, that's a, that's a, that's that. Let's talk about that, because you adultify black folks, boys starting at 10 and girls starting at five. The thing is, he's not an infant. And we need to stop saying this, this is a grown ass, old ass man yeah. making very conscious decisions. And they're not. And so when we say he's he's a baby, when we say he's, um, you know, he's throwing a temper tantrum, all those things infantize him, makes him not responsible for his individual behaviors. And that is problematic because black folks don't get the same, the same treatment. And so, and, and, and this is where, and it's in, in my own community. And this is why I talk about black people need to we really need to reconcile and come to grips with our own internalized white supremacy and anti-blackness because we have been bathed in this system of white supremacy and it can only happen for us to be complicit in this system when we have been taught, um, you know, um, our communities. I hear, I mean, I can hear, I know family members who will still to this day say derogatory things because they understand that their role, even if they're not conscious of it, is to assimilate. And um, anything that's not assimilation is bad. And, and if you look at the opioid epidemic, same thing. When crack was the thing, it was community, it was Blacks, it was our problem. When opioids became a problem, we didn't get into the opioids. So there's so much systemic shit going on with the opioid because we weren't initially impacted in our communities because black people had never believed about pain. So we were never prescribed opioids um, like that. It's we're, we're, we have thicker skin. We can take more pain. So we were never prescribed those things. But as soon as it became a white issue, you have the president talking about it. You have, um, and that includes Obama. Um, all these people talking about it as if it's a, now it's a health issue. It's a, it's a, it's a public health issue where when it was black people, um, in, uh, dealing with crack, it was a criminal issue. And as our criminal justice system shows, it is filled with people who, who, if not, if of no other reason for the color of their skin, it would be a public health issue. And, and that's exactly it's actually a perfect example of what, what I'm talking about, right? Because um, like, I think everybody would agree there is a huge problem with opiate addiction, right? Um, rural white communities are really, really suffering. And actually, there's great work by economists that show um, that because of opiates and other factors, um, white life expectancy in parts of the country is going down. So it's not like it's a problem. It's actually a huge problem. But the reason that it's hard for white communities to um, address the opioid epidemic um, doesn't really have to do with whiteness or blackness per se. It's because they live in states where they voted in politicians who have completely defunded the um, the addiction treatment system, the um, you know the healthcare system, no Medicaid expansion, and there are profoundly racial and racist reasons why those politicians get elected because they're saying our policies aren't going to give money to undeserving immigrants and minorities, but it turns out it boomerangs and then, and, 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 and really it's part of the fuel on the fire of the opioid epidemic, which then influences white, uh, white, white communities. And so it, the point is 
we're all related <laughs> and we should we should better b- build structures that help <laughs> everybody and see it that way because the minute we start thinking we're going to build a structure that hurts you but helps me that's when that structure is not going to work for anybody and so that's that's one of the examples i actually talk about in the book Can you give me an example of what it's like? Because I, 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 I stay in my <laughs> bubble. I really like my echo chamber um, because um, as a black woman, I just cannot. I refuse to have a conversation with anybody who wants to deny my humanity. But could you tell me what it's like to have a conversation with a neo-Nazi or um, anybody who, who you're, who's challenging you on this? who has really extreme because another thing I don't believe and my job is not to convince or convert um I'm here to help people who 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 assist people who understand at some point that something is wrong even if they can't articulate it um but what is that because I did see a video where you were at a bookstore and mm-hmm. people came in and I was like oh wow that was that was kind of intense so how do you handle what is those, what are those, I don't even know what those conversations are like. What are those conversations like? Well, let me make two points. The first point is actually counterintuitive, right? Which is um, not everybody I spoke to in interview. I did five years of research in the book, right? And not everybody I interviewed um, was some flaming racist or neo-Nazi. In fact, most people weren't, right? And so part of the argument I make in the book is that it, it, it I mean, definitely it, it's, of course, the, the press around the book and the readers and me probably, but like the stories that, that got publicized were the really, really crazy things I heard, right? But 85% of the people I spoke with were just trying to live their life. And it turned out the racism for them wasn't about their individual attitudes. It was that they lived in a state where they voted for politicians who cut Medicaid expansion, um, again, for racist but reasons. But say, I'm going to challenge you that, challenge you on that, because then why did they vote for these individuals? If they're... If, Right. And, and some people even, again, some people also didn't, uh, didn't vote for these people. But, but, um, so my point is that the racism ultimately wasn't about whether or not one person was racist. The racism was if they lived in a city or state that voted in policies that, that punished people ba- basically on racial terms. So some people I voted, I interviewed were white people who, who voted for Hillary Clinton and they hated what was happening. Um, but they also lived in states that refused to block, that refused to uh, allow the Affordable Care Act as one example and stuff like that. And so ultimately it was the system that had the negative effects. Now, of course, the system is built by individuals. Um, Now, I will say that some of the individual stories, I mean, one story that jumps out at me is I was doing interviews um, about the Affordable Care Act and I was interviewing very, very medically ill white men um, um, who really would have benefited. This is in Tennessee and um, other places in the South where they didn't expand the uh, Medicaid, they didn't create the competitive insurance marketplaces. And I said, like, hey, you guys are dying because you don't have health care. Um, why don't you get down with the Affordable Care Act? What's your, you know, what's your reason? And um, I would say a number of people told me things like one man told me, there's no way I'm supporting a system that would benefit, as he said, Mexicans and welfare queens, like total racist um, stereotypes. And so even though he would have benefited, um, and this guy at ultimately over the three years of interviews, he passed away because he didn't have medical care. So he was literally willing to die rather than sign up for a program that he thought was going to benefit immigrants. But, but I also want to make clear that ha- the other half of the people that I interviewed 
didn't say crazy stuff. And I don't know what was going on in their minds or their hearts. I, I don't know what their feelings were, but they were also racist, whether or not their individual attitudes were in support of that, because they lived in a state that tried to penalize black people by not expanding Medicaid. I mean, that's as clearly as I can put it. And so really, um, it, it, it was this bigger issue. And, and part of the issue, the part of the reason I'm making that point is because we live in this world where the sensational stories get get the get the airtime right now, right? It's all about, you know, the one crazy Trump supporter who does this crazy thing, who then it goes viral on Twitter and all those things. And that's important. That is important because they come to stand in for things. But really it's um what what part of what I saw in my research um was not just crazy people saying racist things, which I, I'll tell you in a minute. I mean it was pretty intense to talk to people about that. Um but 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 it was also that there was this bigger system that was more important, I thought, than whether or not one individual person was racist, because ultimately a lot of people were dying because the system was not expanding healthcare. It was cutting education. It was letting guns go everywhere. It was, um, you know, doing away with uh, addiction centers, all these things. Um, and so in a way, it's, it's always got to be, for me at least, it, it's not just about being woke or apologizing. It's actually looking at these systems. And I, I also say, you know, I, as you might be able to hear, I take my real inspiration um, from people like Stokely Carmichael, right? Who basically used to say, I don't care about the individual. Like I care about the racism that's in, you know, in the zoning board, in the school, in the redlining, all those kind of things that in a way, you know, it's about it's in part about the institution and and part of the reason I'm saying that in line with what we're talking about is um, I think if we don't fix the institutions, people can apologize all they want, but the problem will will remain. And so that's why anti-racism is important, but so is thinking about how anti-racism can be a structural change in, in addition to making people individually more aware of the problem. Everyone in the hashtag called the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtagcausescene.com. In addition to making people individually more aware of the problem. And so the reason I asked about the extreme is because, again, like I said, I never come in contact with them. So anybody having a conversation with them about this, I really would, would like to hear what is the what are what languaging are you using to just to have that conversation? Um, and yes, this is this. I, I t totally agree that this is why I don't, first of all, okay, this is why my default is all whiteness is racist by, de by design and can't be trusted by default without consistent anti-racist behavior. Um, that's one that, that gives me a baseline so that when I say whiteness, I'm talking about the system. I don't want to talk about individuals because talking about individuals gets me, unless there's an individual who's doing something specific that I need to address, we're talking about systems. If we don't, it's the same thing in, in our workplaces. If we don't deal with the policies, procedures, and processes that are in a place that are actively harming, we do absolutely nothing. Apologizing means nothing because it's going to happen again in some shape or form because you've not removed or repaired or fixed the, the policies, the things that are actually enabling 
the discrimination or whatever happening. And also, I just, I just from somebody who has talked to this, I just, just trying to understand, or I understand it on an intellectual level, um, but I need the, 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 the audience to understand about how individual white people, and, and based on my definition, all whiteness is racist by design, actively, consciously make decisions. Now, this is not an all, because I don't do alls, but actively, consciously make decisions that will negatively impact them in order to preserve a system. And I say that because we see it time and time again with white feminism. Um, there's a, the, just came out about, so the CEO of, of, of CrossFit last week was, had his, his, his racist tyrant, you know, did his little thing. Um, he apologized, which, you know, it's like, uh-huh, right on, t- right on cue. And then it comes out this weekend that um, it was a sexist environment. And this is what happens. And it talks about what you just said. If white women had prioritized all women's equity doing suffrage in every of the moments since then and not made it about just white women, white women wouldn't be dealing with the same sexist bullshit that they're dealing with because all isms (laughs) are rooted in this mess. And had they brought in and, 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 and allowed to rise their voices and supported women who are more vulnerable than them, there will be, we'd be having a totally different conversation a hundred years hence. <laughs> you know, that's the great argument in, for example, hood feminism right now, right? The great, this great book that I'm reading. Um, and, and I think it's a powerful point because it ties into so many examples of that. You could also think, I mean, but beyond feminism, which I think is a great point, And I encourage everybody to read this book. It's a remarkable book. Um, but, but, um, you know, Du Bois, right, wrote this book called Black Reconstruction. And the whole idea was, okay, we've just fought this idiotic civil war. We killed like a million people or more. Um, and it was over this idea that we should now move beyond, that one race is more superior to the other. Obviously, that's just going to lead us into this horrible place. And so after the civil war, there were two groups of people who were really getting treated like shit. There were poor white people who were not landowners. They didn't own anything. Um, they were in the South. They didn't really have any rights. They didn't have any privileges. They were incumbent. They were kind of beholden to these white elites. And there were newly freed slaves who, of course, didn't have any land. They didn't have any um, wages. <laughs> and they were um, very disenfranchised also. And the point was, wouldn't it be awesome if the poor white communities and the poor black communities got together? Um, because then they could change the labor force almost overnight, that they could extract all of these concessions from from um, capital, from northern corporations. They needed, they needed people to do the work, right? Um, and so if they got together, um, they, could, they could really form a powerful force. And, and why didn't they do that? It was not just because of racism, but what Du Bois calls the wage of whiteness, right? This idea that being white means something. And, and to advocate for that, is is in effect to advocate in, in that in this sense against um, your self interest because the minute um, white people started saying yeah I'm white I'm better than those people they it it cut off their bargaining power <laughs> and they've been screwed for the last you know 150 years or <laughs> whatever and this is the same argument I have with um, white presenting Jews 
This is the same argument I have with white um, transgender women or, or um, I've not heard it. And I'm saying women because I've not heard it from white in the white trans in the transgender men community. I don't have any many um, connections there. Um, but every time that anybody who can can find an opportunity to leverage whiteness in for their benefit in the long run it harms them it's um, funny you know because like so my dad's a holocaust survivor right our family came to the u.s um our entire family was exterminated pretty much in the holocaust we lost um 80 80 family uh, 85 and my dad and his parents escaped we came to the u.s he came to the u.s in the 50s right and so I think for people in our community, like on one hand, it's been too easy to make this argument, which is true, right? Our family technically didn't obviously own slaves. We weren't part of Jim Crow, all these kind of things. Um, um, but also, um, and, and and there's this book about how did Jews become white, right? But, yeah, but, I got that. <laughs> um, but um, but um, and so you know, um, and, and I grew up in Missouri with tons of anti-Semitism, but at the same time, I don't think that gets me off the hook, right? Because no, to me, you're a white dude. I don't see Jewish because no one asks me what kind of black I am. So I don't ask white people what kind of white you are. I go by what you look like. <laughs> yeah, and, and again, that's that's my point, right? And and in a way, there are, you know, there are divisions in everything, right? I mean, um, mm-hmm. you know, every and, and and I think we, you know, like Hutus and Tutsis are are both black, and mm-hmm. you know, all these kind of things. Like they're so, you know, but, but I would say that the minute you're white in America and you're walking down the street, you're white. I mean, that's kind of, yep. that's kind of, so for me, my, I, I think white identified Jews, because that's me, I want to stand up for us, right? I feel like non-white identifying Jews, that's where, that's where I go crazy, because I'm like, it doesn't matter, you walk down the street, so maybe there's a historical difference. I mean... And, you know, I mean, we can talk about that too. Like, well, I, no one's asking, no one's stopping you to question you about your historical difference, and that's the that's the that's the caveat that that um, white passing Jews um, miss, as well as their behavior causes harms to black causes harm to black and brown Jews because they get erased, um, and so. I see, and so with the event that I have coming up this weekend, there have been people who reaching who've reached out from um, communities because I said it was for just for white people, but they've reached out from people from South Asian communities who get the benefit of the doubt more than any black person in the United States. Um, anybody who's um, who has who is fundamentally leveraging white supremacy or whiteness to their benefit are reaching out and saying, hey, is this for me? Hell yeah, it's for you. It's for you because I need you to understand, just like you, like you said, it doesn't, and this is where the, 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 the angst in my community comes from. And since I have a white male Jew on here, I'm going to have this conversation <laughs> because this is where the, 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 the pull, the, 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 the tension comes in my community. So, uh, and we're just going to have a real conversation. So I, when, I like that. yeah. So when, um, we we saw this with the women's march. They were there was solidarity until there was an a, a, an occasion where one of the organizers f- has a relationship with Louis Farrakhan. Let me let me explain something to you uh, to people about what Louis Farrakhan means to my community. There have always been people in our community who we 
what they say, um, handle with a long spoon. You know, it's like, okay, he's over there, but I ain't got to be around. You know, I ain't got to deal with that because we've always had to, again, this is again, because I want to talk about the difference between just groups and individuals. Black people have survived because we're community. And whiteness is about individuals. So those are the differences. So Farrakhan definitely has said some very anti-Semitic shit. People can admit that. What we will not do, though, is throw him away and his message away when he talks about how Blacks are treated in this country and how his, uh, like, Nation of Islam, I could never, I, I don't, um, I, I, there are some very misogynistic, uh, patriarchal things about most religions, particularly that's led by Black men. That's just what that is. That's trauma in my community. That's a whole number of conversations for us to have, not for white folks to stick their finger in and tell us what we're supposed to be doing. That right there pisses us the fuck off. That way that <laughs> makes us double down because when, when all these, and this is just me being real, and this is where there are people who will not listen to me because they say I'm an anti-Semite. You need to stop throwing that shit around when people challenge you. That is harmful as hell because when... When white folks, Jewish people who, um, who can benefit from whiteness, when our communities are being ravaged, Farrakhan was there. So you, it's gonna be, you, you hard pressed to get, I'm an intellectual. I see that shit. But if that's in your community and that's the person who's feeding you during a pandemic or whatever it is, you're not gonna throw that away. And for white people to come in, I don't care, white by Anglican or whatever, to come in and dictate how we are to commune with members of our community is stepping over the fucking line. And I had a problem with this when um, Obama had to disavow his minister. Look what y'all got now. (laughs) You made such a stink about that without understanding the historical context of what his minister was talking about. You made that such a big deal. And um, uh, uh, Obama is an assimilist. I don't see him as an anti-racist. He's a person who believes that assimilation will help us all. He said it with the hanging, your pants hanging down and all kinds of stuff. To me, again, that's a whole nother internalized white supremacy, anti-blackness we have to deal with as a black community. But what we will not have is for white folks to come in and dictate to us what is what keeps us safe, what we need to be following, who we need to listen to. And this is why you get uh, a um, people, um, uh, Robin DiAngelo is the number one um, book, uh, a, white, a white studies book is number one when people are talking about um, anti-blackness. That is the problem. People do not understand, people, whiteness lives in binaries. We don't survive in the binaries. We survive in shades of gray. We all got an uncle or aunt, we was just like, shut the fuck up and put her in the corner somewhere. <laughs> but when it comes to somebody attacking that aunt or uncle, oh, hell no, you ain't going to do this. This is why we don't understand. We are sitting back freaking dis- uh, amazed at how white people are talking about, um, we're talking about um, um, uh, sacrificing mama and pawpaw for a pandemic so they can get back to work. Black people is looking at y'all like, what the hell is wrong with y'all? <laughs> I mean, let me let me say a couple things because I think that that's about as good of a 
articulation of this as I've probably ever heard. Um, um, so I'm going to tell you a few random things. Number one, of course, is that, of course, Nation of Islam also has a history, right? It wasn't just here recently, right? Nation of Islam going back to its role in helping people during the Detroit riots and during the, I mean, there's a whole history there that 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 is um, similar to other groups, right? I mean, that's why, for example, um, you know, it, so it's easy to stereotype what those groups do. And that's not just a question here. Like, for example, Hezbollah in in the mm-hmm. in the Middle East, like it's like they, yeah they they um, do terrorism, but they also they build hospitals, mm-hmm. they give people blankets, they give people food and stuff like that. And so in a way, um, you you oversimplify yes. when you just say oh here's this one thing. Um, I will say that this the, before we go back to the other stuff, like the question of Jewishness for me, um, and I really don't even talk about this this much that much, but it's kind of complicated, right? Because I can tell you honestly that I couldn't do the work I do. If I didn't grow up the way I did, right? In other words, like I do feel like not that it's in any way comparable, or not that it gets me off the hook of, of privilege or benefit, but I also grew up um, in a family that, um, you know, my dad's grandparents were murdered, and all of his mm-hmm. aunts and aunts and uncles, and so mm-hmm. I've grown up seeing what happens when the state turns on you, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. when we grew up, like my dad was always like, pack a night, yeah, uh, two weeks of like toilet paper and toiletries in a bag under your bed, just in case like the Nazis come back or something like that. So, you know, I, we grew up kind of recognizing what happens when you feel like you're part of the state and it turn turns on you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then where I grew up, um, like I grew up in Missouri um, and we were the, the Jews in our neighborhood. Right. And so none of the other kids would play with us. Um, the, the neighbors actually built a fence around our property so that it would block the other kids from playing with us. So, all of our friends actually were non-white when we were growing up because none of the white kids would play with us. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and, and so, and so, part of what I've thought about for myself, at least, is it kind of it kind of made me think that I was I was definitely not white on my block, right? <laughs> Nobody would think that I was white on my block. I was Jewish, and then the minute I left my block, I was white because I looked like every other every other white mm-hmm. person. And so, in a way. It kind of speaks for me to the re- relationality of all of all this stuff, right? That and the I transient think, nature of whiteness. Yeah, exactly, exactly, right. and also that I just do think that people who have suffered historical trauma understand a little bit more what's happening right now. Right. And this is where it gets me, though. Can we stop trying to compare pain? Right. Exactly. Can we stop yeah. saying trying to make the Holocaust or slavery, but they both are. Tra- we both have a legacy of trauma. And use that shared legacy to move forward I, instead of trying. And the other thing is, yeah. like, I do think the Jews kind of bought the whiteness narrative a little bit too much, you know. And so that was part. I'm of- gonna let you say that because um, yeah. I'm gonna tell you the most racist, most damaging racial experience I had, and I don't share this often, was when I was um, I just got my master's degree in training and development, and I was in, living in Chicago, and I was doing um, work with in um, in out of school time with students. Um, and that's after school programs, summer camps and that kind of thing. And I was taking a training at the, um, the Anti-Defamation League. And it was to take one of their trainings into schools. That was the most triggering and racist experience I had. And I'm gonna break, I'm, I want people to understand what I mean by this. So there were mm, maybe 40 people there, three or four black people. 
And so this is another reason why I don't like those exercises, those everybody start in the back of the room and, and then they give you, tell you your privilege and you get to move forward and all these other things. This is why I have a hard time I, I'm against a lot of these triggering exercises because people don't know how to unpack them well. So we go through a whole day of just this shit, just these black people always in the back. Just, it's just really bringing up a whole bunch of stuff for us. We're really traumatized. We're crying and everything. And we're told that we, when we tried to talk about this, that this was not the place for it because this was a Jewish space. Well, you know, I, I would say first, that sounds like shit. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Oh, it was, that was, I, that was a, that I literally, I went to bed, I woke up in the middle of the night and I was, cause I was still living with my mom and I woke up with this scream and she's like, I've never heard you scream like that before. It was just like this pain. And I immediately got up the next day went and found a, a therapist. Cause that really impacted me. It so impacted me that I'm only really remembering it now. Years later, am I now like, oh shit, that happened to me. Well, you know, and again, like it's not one thing, right? That's what we're saying. Nothing's like the Anti-Defamation League is doing incredible work right now about all this stuff, right? Too. So it's it's never it's never one thing. But it's funny because I was thinking, you know, you asked me what it was like to talk to racist um, Trump supporters. And I will tell you that um, maybe 15, 20% of the people, and also the people who didn't talk to me, because I told them I was writing a book about it. I was very clear what I was doing. Um, you know, the, probably the people didn't talk to me, but I, but I did speak to a lot of people and, um, like, like some people were just racist to the core. Um, and I, again, I don't know what they were like. I don't know what was in their heart or their soul, but I will say that there was no way I was going to get through to them. I'm now ready to articulate and to publicly share my need to shift from causing the scene. Currently this work, this push for equity, for minimizing harm and for prioritizing the most vulnerable is collectively viewed by many as noise, bullying, troublemaking, as contrarian for controversy's sake, rather than what it is, a necessary evolution for the overall health and well-being of those who work for us, partner with us, buy from us, invest in us, and society as a whole. My focus from this day forward is to forge a path to welcoming and psychological safety in systems, institutions, and policies at scale because I will no longer put new wine into old wineskins. My team and I will be spending the next few months making the necessary changes to ensure that my new commitment to doing the proactive work of leading a movement framed by the guiding principles and seen through an anti-racist lens strategically happens with a relaunch on Juneteenth. To be kept informed of our progress, please follow me on Twitter at K-I-M-C-R-A-Y-T-O-N-1, Kim Creighton 1, and on our new Kim Creighton's Community Cafe Discord server. When I started Hashtag Cause a Scene in 2019, it was out of my frustration that no one was listening. Now that you're listening, it's time to get to work. Thank you for the years of support, and I'll meet you on the other side. Have a wonderful day. But I will say that there was no way I was going to get through to that. Um, and then another, another big group of people were kind of like anybody's crazy relative, right? <laughs> Including my crazy relative, your crazy relative, which is that they had these really 
idiotically racist ideas about certain things, but they were also like, um, you know, you just met them and you almost like, like they were short or they were weak or they were frail or they were anxious or they were your crazy uncle who had these crazy views or something like that. And so part of the issue was having spent a lot of time in communities like this, it wasn't like, oh, I bonded and I was going to go out and vote for Trump or anything like that. But it made me realize how when we meet people like on Twitter, for example, and in two sentences, they can say their most racist thing or something like that. It becomes, it almost feels like the problems are unsolvable, right? Um, they're unsolvable because that crazy racist thing that your uncle says or that you know, anti-Semitic thing or something, that becomes their whole being when we're only engaging each other on Twitter, right? And so, and so part of it also made me frustrated, right? Because when I spent time in communities, I also realized people are more complicated than they are on Twitter. Um, you know, that we're being, we're being forced to, um, we're being forced to fight with each other because we only have two sentences to say stuff or the most crazy person is the person who gets on Instagram and all that stuff. And so it is also frustrating, right? Because there's a lot of benefit in convincing us that we, we can never get along, right? I mean, the media makes money, Trump makes money, everybody makes money. Um, but I don't know, over the pandemic, I've been interviewing a lot of my libertarian subjects, you know? Mm. Oh, they're quiet right now. Oh yeah. my God. They're, they ain't saying shit right now. Oh, they wanted to debate everything <laughs> until now. <laughs> but, but, but what I'm saying is like across multiple, multiple um, groups that I'm interviewing, people just are afraid right now and they're, they're isolated. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the frustration mm -hmm. is for me is like, there's no way we can talk to each other because we're all socially distanced and all we have are these two sentences and those become they come to stand in for and, us. And so for you, you're frustrated. For me, it's what I've been asking. This is what I've been talking about for the, since I've been in this space that I said that white people weren't in enough pain to do anything other than lip service. And this is why my issue with um, Robert D'Angelo's book was, uh, and this was before the pandemic. I, I stopped recommending that book last year because I saw how it was you being used, the language and people used it as a way to get a language um, to have a conversation, but actually not do any work. And so, and I kept saying, white people aren't in enough pain. And unfortunately, when white people get in enough pain, the most vulnerable are going to have to, are going to suffer. And we saw that with the beginning of the pandemic and who was dying. Um, and who, uh, we saw that with the marches, who got to march with guns and who still gets to march with guns. And yet, so um, a black man who's running away with a taser, should he have grabbed the taser? Of course he shouldn't have, but he was running away and got shot in the back. Um, they're, they're, these are the stories that people don't want to, and these are the honest conversations I want to have because it's, it's like, okay, let's, 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 let's look at all of this. Let's see, let, let's talk about, um, so your libertarian friends or people this is why i this falls back on the the narrative that all speech is equal that everything is equal no 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 everything is not equal so um so the the libertarian sect who's really quiet right now it's because you can't there's okay let me let me back up people ask me what's makes what is different about this moment and for me what's different about this moment is that we were in the middle of a pandemic people were dying people were losing their jobs and they didn't have a distraction there is no sports there's no nothing there's no movies there's no nothing there's nothing that people real fundamentally in large groups feel safe doing or be distracted from so 
what you saw was that angst. And it was one of the reasons why I quarantined as soon as South by Southwest was canceled, because I knew that white folks was going to start feeling pain. And when white folks feel pain or feel discomfort, people like me get harmed. And I saw that with how many guns were being bought. Um, people just buying out gun stores. It's like, what the hell? Um, and, and it's interesting to, um, to see this play out. And it, it's, it's, this is a time that is so uncomfortable, but I see so much in hope and potential in this moment. I see people keep, I'm like, I feel this feels different to me. Now I'm not as old as my, uh, my, my aunt who marched with King, my dad marched with King and, and, and John Lewis. I'm not, I wasn't around then, but what I can tell you is this moment feels different. I mean, they fucking changed the racism definition in the dictionary. It's like, <laughs> what? I mean, AP, one of the largest media outlets, news media outlets, is now using capital B when referencing Black people. What? <laughs> and we know when language changes, it forces behavior changes. I see. This is huge. Well, I, I could not agree with you more. And, and, and I feel, again, like... Every piece of data will show that the structural changes that emerge from that um, are are important, right? I mean, they're not just important for minoritized communities; they're important for society, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, societies that have better access to um, um, resources, that more more people can take quality public transportation to work; those those c- cities do better. Um, you know, those communities do better. Um, corporations that have more diverse voices sitting around the table, um, people come at a, at a complex problem um, in, in a different way. Those corporations are actually do better at solving complex problems. And, in, and conversely, that's why the Trump administration can't figure out the pandemic because it's the same it's the same kind of person sitting around the table people yeah. only you know in, in a way and so in a way those those changes are going to be important and they're going to benefit everybody and and that's on that system you know, level that you were talking about exactly right. I, can, I can you and i can have in our in our slide deck all we want this social science definition of racism but when the dictionary the dictionary people change it it's like okay <laughs> <laughs> No, and 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 it's incredible. It, that part is it's unimaginable. It's unimaginable. And but but the flip side, right, is that there's also a danger in this moment. I mean, you mentioned guns as one example. And so even though there were white people marching with guns, um, like the NRA would love for black people to buy tons of guns, right? Um, you know, because they're they're an arms dealer. They're not a um, you know. And so this. And, but the thing is, we know from 1966 to 1970. That the minute that happens, that leads to, you know, new policies. Really bad, yeah, but, but also like potentially bad outcomes, right? More guns yep. doesn't just mean more white privilege, it also means more partner shootings and mm-hmm. more suicides and stuff like mm-hmm. that. So I keep telling people the answer is not that everybody should get a gun, right? The answer is actually nobody should have a gun, <laughs> you know, in a way that that would be a better outcome of this. Um, and so I, I just think that, that right now everything is, I mean, the, the terror of this moment, number one is that we've, got this virus out the window. And number two is um, that everything feels up for grabs. And that's a moment of potential change. And part of that is about putting a capital, you know, B um, for everybody. I think that is where we have to start. Um, but, but the flip side, and 
this is, you know, we can do our next show about this, it is also... Oh, wow. Get you booked yeah. for a next show next year? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, the other thing is, um, like if any political group ever wanted to talk to me, I would also say, just based on my research, um, like, you know who benefits if we think all Trump supporters um, are the same? Trump, right? Because, so in other words, I, I'm trying to push like campaigns to actually take the fight to Trump by reaching out to Trump supporters right now and basically saying, hey, where's your health care? Hey, where's your education? Hey, whatever. Like, it's not like they're all total zombies who are just making decisions based on like, you know, being hypnotized or something like that. Like, the, they're, they're also really afraid right now as well. And I'm not in any way trying to, um, I'm not in any way trying to excuse any of this crap. But what I'm saying is that, um, you know, now is a moment not only for justice work to be done, that's most important, but it's also a moment where we can create new coalitions and, and alliances. And I think that the possibilities are, um, you know, I mean, that's why Trump is doing all this work to make it seem like it's like us against them, because this idea of rethinking that whole wage of whiteness idea, you know, is like, if you're living in a pandemic and the Democrats are going to offer you like a universal healthcare plan, and there's a virus and you're going broke, like maybe you're going to, maybe you're going to support that or something like that. So this idea of this binary that's an imposed structural binary is something that is something that works for Trump. It works for Twitter. But let's, let's talk about it. It just doesn't work for Trump. Trump is an outcome. It works oh, course, for white supremacy. And oh, so that's, that's I mean. another that's thing I mean. because people want to blame him. No, 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 no. He's a byproduct of years of system of systematic um, racism, white supremacy, and policies and, 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 and aligning this. Um, because I've been studying, starting to study um, just like the, the, the origins of our capitalist um, uh, economic systems because I challenge Dr. Kendi. Well, I challenge him on two things. I won't get into the second, the first one. But I challenge him and anybody who says that we have to have an anti-racist, anti-capitalist. I don't have a problem with capitalism. I, every system we have in this world is rooted in white supremacy. Can we try to see if we can have just for just for, you know, get these libertarians who want to have a debate. Can we have an anti-racist capitalist system? Can we have a capitalist system that is not that is about private um, investment, but also is about uh, prioritizing the most vulnerable? And you see it in some of the businesses that are being created now and the business models that are being created and how they're taking their lead. Um, and until we deal with these systems, uh, because you, you mentioned the, the gun thing. Yeah. White people got guns, but there's a there's a there's a there is a binary there. White people with guns have a pr power that black people with guns don't. Um, and so even there, it's not equal. So black people can have guns. Black people with guns are criminals. White people with guns are, are, are for self um, self um, protection. Um, until we can have a language that is about. Again, this is why I say blackness and whiteness. This is the only thing I can see that puts them on the same level. So we can have those conversations. We're not actually dealing with the problems because you can have all the um, affordable health care you want to, just like this Medicare for all. That does not change the fact, and I continue to talk about this, these three things, the fact that it's nowhere written in a book, but doctors being trained today still believe that black people can endure more pain and we have a thicker epidermis. Um, the fact that it doesn't matter how much money, how much privilege, um, wealth, inc whatever, black women are and their babies are still dying in childbirth. 
And um, when um, you take away these hospitals in rural areas, like I live in a city, you live in a city that there's major hospitals. Somebody 50 minutes from here can't get to a hospital. So until we start really talking about the systems in place, and this is why I was, I'm not happy with any, and this is, that's it. This, this is the only po- political thing I have to say. I'm not happy with any candidate because none of them had a fundamentally anti-racist agenda. Medicare for all is no longer progressive. And, and, and it's only progressive because white people get to define what progress, progressive is. If you ask the most vulnerable, that's not progressive because that is the middle of the road for most Democrats at this point. What I, we need is somebody who's willing to fundamentally even talk about race and not make it a class issue and who has some, some gravitas or something, if not the, the, the knowledge to change it, the power and the privilege to endow those who are, have the ability to change this to do that and sit, go sit your ass down somewhere. That's the only, that's the only thing that I care about a Biden. That's the only, please get a uh, black vi- uh, female vice president candidate. It's coming. So, it's so coming. you can, almost oh, definitely, because they done, it, and this is where we, it took a pandemic, um, George Floyd, all of us to get us here because I don't want him saying shit. I need him to just be the figurehead <laughs> and do it because he is fundamental prob- he is problematic himself um but this is the closest we've got here and so everything this is this is just like where i when, when we talk i i can always just go again again and, and i'm sure it's from my lived experience can always go deeper like yeah that's not that's just scratching the surface and i need folks who are willing to d- just keep going deeper um what i won't tolerate though are to i'm just not having a conversation with people who just think fundamentally that I don't have a right to exist or that I'm worth, uh, that I'm by DNA less um, inferior to them. Y'all can have those conversations because I, I could care less about a Trump supporter. Well, I'll, I'll tell you three things because um, I, I just agree with everything you just said pretty much. <laughs> um, you know, um, number one, of course, is that, um, I mean, I think mm-hmm. elections really matter, right? And I think that Elections matter, and and when to win elections, you need to build coalitions, right? Just the way the American system is working, um, um, uh, and and particularly yes. because of the electoral college mm-hmm. and 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 swing states and all these kind of things. But I think it's important, right, that anti-racism, just like racism is structural, anti-racism is structural. Yes. And so, what are, what are the things that you would have to put in place to have structural anti-racism? Well, it would be. Better access economically, better job market, better healthcare, better education. It turns out the things that help minoritized communities that are structurally anti-racist help everybody. Much help everybody exactly. <laughs> and so, and so, in, and so, in a way, I just think that that's a coalition-building moment, right? It's yes. not like oh, we just want something for any one group. It's actually if we create an anti-racist agenda, yes, um, the world's going to be a better place. Yes. And so, I. I, and so number one is, I think that that is, um, I think that's, that's gotta be the line, right? It's not like we're, you know, it's not like we're just, oh, just giving whatever. That's the conservative line. It's like, oh, affirmative action just helps black people. No, affirmative action friggin' helps everybody. And, and so, um, well, and so, let's be, let's be clear yeah. right now. It benefits white women. So let's no, be clear. <laughs> but, but I'm saying, I saying the idea. So my point is that anti-racism is a platform, not because when you start to say, oh yeah, healthcare and and access and jobs and fairness and safe communities, um, that's actually good for the country, right? And so 
and, and to right these historical wrongs. And so part of the issue of why I'm saying like reach out to um, Trump supporters is I think there's a kind of anti-racist platform that could convince a lot of people, including people you might not expect. Um, oh, and that's my point. I let other people do that work. That's not work yeah. I choose to do. Uh, number two is about capitalism. Um, and and I, I had this thing. I gave a talk in a bookstore and it was um, in, well, it was in Harlem, right? And and it was like um, half of it, half the group was like super liberal, progressive white people. And the other half were like African-American people from Harlem. Um, and the guy who introduced me got up and he said, we're anti-capitalist. We're going to do a revolution. We're throwing away our earthly goods into the thing. We're rejecting the capitalist system. And, and I think like all the black people in the audience were like, yeah, that's not going to work for us exactly, <laughs> you know, because like, like, Ern, did we say that? Yeah. Did we agree to this before yeah. you got up there? <laughs> and the thing is like all the, and all the progressive people were like, we're going to throw away our earthly goods. And like all the black people were like, yeah, who's going to, who's going to get screwed by that? Right. You know? So, um, and, and I think that's true for a lot of things. Guns, the same thing. Yes. Like who's gonna, mm-hmm. if we give everybody a gun, who's, who's going to get shot first and stuff like that. So I think in a way there are these liberal white positions that are themselves. And I think the critique of capitalism, I would put on top of that list. I could not agree with that more. Um, so I, I like the critiques of racial capitalism, right? This idea that basically capitalism itself needs to be, of course, analyzed, but it's mm-hmm. not like that. That means we're anti-capitalist, right? Exactly. I think that's the, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You can see where I get in trouble saying stuff like this, but, <laughs> but I, but I really think that's the, I think, I think that's the point. It's just hard to imagine a system outside of that. And also Honestly, look at this country. Who's going to get screwed first if we're anti-capitalists, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and so I think people people like me need to be aware of that argument and make it very, very carefully, right? Because it's um, just the safety net doesn't catch everybody in the same way if we if we do away with capitalism. So yes. that's that's my that's my that's my other point is, um, and the third is I would you know read like. Um, there's great stuff on racial capitalism right now that, that is kind of trying to make that point. But again, it's not like doing away with capitalism. Just like for me, it's not like give everybody <laughs> a gun. You know, that's where we get that's where we get into trouble. So, yeah. so what would you like to say in your final moments on the show? I just love this conversation, right? You know, I mean, these are the conversations that we we should be having and modeling, right? Um, as we move on from this horrible event, um, this horrible moment, and recognizing the bigger issues. Um, I would just love to have more conversations like this, and I'm honored to be part of this conversation. Right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't just be any one person or group of people talking about this system. It should be mo- modeling conversations. Uh, we should be modeling conversations, right? It, it should be many different voices saying this system sucks, and we and we need to change it. Yes. Um, thank you. Wow, this was as I told you, this hour would go by really fast. Um, it was well worth the wait. <laughs> and um i look forward to seeing what you have next we'll see i mean right now it's just like a where can i get a mask and some purell but i'm gonna start (laughs) on something else after that so cool well thank you this is really terrific thank you and have a wonderful day take care bye-bye thank you for listening to this week's episode of the hashtag cause the scene podcast and I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the hashtag Call the Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the hashtag Call the Scene community. Just visit the website at hashtag Call the Scene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at hashtag Call the Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day. <laughs>